Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. This is an exciting topic for me. Um, If you know about um, my particular fascination with the magical peoples of the world, the medicine people, the people who learn the ways of healing and um, compassion and the mystery and all the other things that make up a medicine person in a traditional culture, Um, I call them wayfinders because I believe it's their job to find their way through the world and to help other people find their way as well. And many, many, many of you, if not all of you, I would classify as wayfinders. Now, there's a particular archetype that I believe is genetic and it comes with the role of the medicine person or the wayfinder. And people with that um, archetype tend to be, uh, and sorry if I'm repeating, Uh, Very empathic, very um, committed to understanding people, understanding the natural world. They love animals, plants, poetry, the stars, um, plants, plant healing, uh, any kind of of healing modality. And in our culture, we split them all apart and call them a million different things. Like the doctor is not the one who goes out and studies botany. Um, But in... A traditional culture that's exactly who needs to go out and study botany because that's where the medicines come from so there are all these things clumped together also there was a Cherokee medicine man I talked to who said of, of course I use hypnosis if you were out here in the middle of nowhere with no anesthesia wouldn't you use hypnosis wouldn't you use the placebo effect of course I know the mind of course I'm using it as a healer so they have all these interesting skills and talents and interests and their high sensitivity is coupled with a really keen intuition and um, also the tendency to experience other people's fear and pain so we've talked about this before and what happens if you are born into this is that you're kind of you know how they say about some football players he was big when he was little like he was born a big baby A lot of wayfinders are old when they're young. So even if you're out there and you're like 15 years old and you're going, I get this, you probably, you could be what I call an older. I call it this because one of my dear master coach friends, Michael Trotta, who who studied fire making with the Odawa Indians and is a genius in many ways, huge medicine person. He said, there are elders in traditional tribes that everyone goes to for wisdom, but in our culture, we, aren't, we don't create elders as much as we just create olders. We get people who are anxious and nervous and cranky and grabby, and they're old when they're young, and they just get older as they age until they die. And there's no accumulation of wisdom. So in traditional societies, everyone knows. So if you go back you know, a few hundred years, the library was in the minds of the elders. The, um, the knowledge of weather and um, natural phenomena and the different workings of the human heart, they were all mostly accessible through the minds of the elders, people who had lived and watched and wanted, and especially the wayfinder people. So here's the thing. If you were born a wayfinder with that archetype, but you don't have the culture that trains you to be an elder, you tend to be, to stay old. So I was really old when I was young. <laughs> like, um, 
by the time I was 20, I talked last week about chronic pain. By the time I was 20, I was in severe chronic pain. I had constant depression and anxiety. Uh, I sat around brooding about death and uh, the fact that everything was going to be lost. And why should I even bother? Shouldn't I die right now? Oh, I wish I could die right now. I was seriously old at 18, 19, 20 years of age. Then I started to get a little bit of training in that I had therapy. So I learned from an elder, um, my, my therapist when I was 19, 18. Um, he basically, he was a man who had lived among the Navajo Indians, the Diné of the Four Corners area. And he was in love with that culture. And I, his training was, was obviously Western academia, but he had this big dose of Navajo medicine man in him. And he would just sit there, he was really quiet. He'd sit there and he goes, hmm, hmm, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Are you becoming me? He would say odd things like that, that he had heard the medicine people say when he was living among the Diné and loving their ways. And he was, he's dead now, but he was not an older, he was an elder. And I started to learn a little bit about, oh, if you investigate, if you if you start to really go into the subjects that obsess you as a wayfinder, what happens is you become, you start to become younger in your spirit as you get older in chronologically. So then fast forward like a million years. Now I'm doing research on this subject to write my book, Finding Your Way in a Wild New World. I was fascinated by the medicine people and I, I talked to many and I went around and read gazillions of things about different types of medicine people. And here's one thing that I found, that in many cultures, these people are seen to age in reverse. So if you've read The Sword in the Stone or you know about the Arthurian legend, Merlin, his trainer, that's the druidic version of the medicine person, he aged in reverse. So as Arthur would go back and talk to him and get more instructions for life and the round table and everything, Merlin would be younger every time. So I was thinking about this today and I thought, um, what is the difference between just getting older and getting elder? Because just getting older is terrifying and it makes you, basically it's just, you look in the mirror every day and or try to do something you did without a problem 10 years ago and you're kind of like, oh, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> like, oh, now it's got, I've got eye bags on my eye bags. This is not going well. That's if you stay with the standards of the surrounding society. But it's a really terrifying place if you're going by those standards and you're gonna die anyway, hate to tell you this. So how about jumping ship from the older, older and getting into the elder, elder um, flow? And I use the word flow advisedly because here's what I have found over the years. You know, if, if you take a body of water, there, there was a little pond near my house when I was growing up in Utah called the Botany Pond because it was the botanical gardens at BYU, uh, Brigham Young University. They had this pond and it was just stagnant water. They just pumped some water into it and there it sat with frogs and mosquitoes and some carp in it. And it was like my favorite place to go, but oh, I'm telling you, you would not want to drink that water. You would not want to bathe in that water. I spent lots of time in that water. You wouldn't want to go into that water. And the reason is that it was old. It was this stagnant, gnarly, nasty little body of water. Okay, that's what happens 
if you just stay who you are and try to hold on to the way you've always been, you just get old and you get old in a week. But then I remember going to the mountains of Yugoslavia, now Croatia, and looking at this river that was flowing down through the, through the Alps. And it was so, so, so fresh. And I was with someone, we were high up in the Alps, and I was with this Croatian friend, and he said, um, you can drink it, it's completely pure, it's coming down, it's melt water, and it's always fresh, it's always young. And I thought, so this river is brand new, always fresh. And I went to get a drink from the water, and as I did, I looked into it, and it was crystal clear, so it was very, very blue. And one of the reasons it was blue, I looked down and I saw that it was, it was actually constructed, it was paved in white marble. This is like way the hell up in the Alps, right? And it was paved by Romans 2,000 years ago as part of the aqueduct system of Rome. And I was like, okay, now that's different. This was put here about the time of Christ. And you know, when Jesus was walking the earth and now I'm drinking from it because it's brand new, fresh today. And he, the, I thought, okay, lesson. I was only, I was young at the time. Only I was psychologically old. But I remember thinking, there's a lesson in this. And the lesson is that if you stagnate, if you stop allowing flow in any area of your life, if you hang on to the way you want things to be, the way things are, the way they were when you were young, you will be old tomorrow. I don't care if you're 15 watching this or if you're 105, you will be old, old, old if you hang on to the way things have been and the way you want them to stay. But if you let go and let go and let go and come to see impermanence as actually the, the flow of your own life, impermanence, transience, the, the continuous change of reality, if you come to love it, allow yourself to flow with it, allow every change that comes, oh, look at that, that's different, that's new. You will always be young, even if you live 2,000 years. And I, I had a sad lesson about this. I was very sad until yesterday. I was sad because I we had to take down our bird feeder because there was a bird plague. And, you know, I'm like, I'm okay with the pandemic. I can keep wearing masks. I can do all this stuff. And then they said, take down bird feeders are now super spreader events. And I was just like, really, really? So I took down my bird feeders. And then they said, okay, plague is getting better. You can put your bird feeders back up. So I did. Now, my bird feeder was like the talk of the bird neighborhood. I, there, were no, there was no talk to the actual people because I am more fond of birds than I am of people. No offense, you guys, I love you. I just love birds more. <laughs> I really do love birds. Like I did this painting, the angels in the painting in the stained glass, they're all the birds that were in my bird feeder, they're all these different colors, cardinals, goldfinches, bluebirds, everything. They haven't come back. My, my bird feeder has been fresh and I got a new bird feeder. It's all shiny and new. I put new seeds in it. I change the seeds every couple of weeks. It's been weeks. I don't see any birds. And I literally thought they were all dead. 
And I have been like, I, I go downstairs in the morning to get my morning coffee and I look out and I see the bird feeder, just no action. And I was really hanging on to the way things were. I wanted those birds back so much. I can't even tell you. And I was spiraling into a major depressive meltdown over the birds. Like Friday, I think, what is it? Sunday. So Friday, I was like driving somewhere and I was calling. I called Ro in the car. Again, it's, I don't want to be alive in a world without birds. I want to die. So I had become old, very old, as I fixated on my bird feeder. And then we had a friend come yesterday from uh, somewhere else in Pennsylvania. And she's like, oh, yeah, I put up my bird feeders and there are birds all over the place. And I was like, really? They're not all dead? And she said, no, there are plenty of them. And I'm like, I still don't know why the hell they're not at my bird feeder. I don't know what I did to offend them. Probably has something to do with politics because these days. Anyway, in one fell swoop, I said, oh, the birds are going to be okay. And then I realized that the birds are going to do what the birds are going to do. And there have been species that have gone extinct in my lifetime that I deeply miss, even though I never knew them in the flesh. And I've got to let it go. I've got to let it be. And I was talking to, yes, you guessed it, my new friend Jill Bolte-Taylor, because we talk a lot now. She tells me about the, the brain. And what she was saying is, if you let go of something that's, I said, okay, so I lost my birds temporarily, whatever. Um, but what if I'd lost a person? What if I'd lost uh, a whole, my country? You know, like, what about a huge loss? And she said, it's, it's like, it's like the person you are constricts around the emotion and it comes in and it comes in. If you allow the pain of loss to flow through you, you will go through 90 seconds of unendurable agony. And she said, it's fine. Go ahead and suffer, but don't forget to enjoy it because this is one of the great experiences of being human. And if you just let yourself go into it for 90 seconds, whoosh, there's a release and you relax for a while and then there's another 90 seconds. And it's just, she said, let yourself like fall on the ground and weep and wail because it's one of the great experiences of life. And I said to her, do you know you are experiencing, you are describing literally, not even metaphorically, the process of giving birth. Like if you've had a baby, you know that the contractions at their worst, and they are very worst, last for 90 seconds and they are, trust me, unbearable. And then they ease off and then they come again too soon, but only for 90 seconds. There seems to be this 90 second limit to our ability to tolerate the unbearable. And after a while, what's that, what that's doing is it brings something through and it brings through a brand new life. It brings through a newborn. And it was just, it was so fascinating to hear her. I, I'd been obsessing about how to stay young. And she was talking about how the experience of allowing even the most unbearable things to flow through us instead of getting caught in us. She said, if you clamp on it, if you decide this must not happen, I will not let it happen, it will stay there forever. And you will be not only old, but miserable old, like the worst kind of old. But if you let the pain flow, whatever it is, then 
you will become new, you will become new, you will become new. And I thought what she's actually talking about is the rebirth of a new self. It's the old self that lets go. It's the, the way things were that lets go. The pregnant woman is not going to be the pregnant woman after that baby comes out, but she's going to be something different, the mother to this newborn. And that's beautiful. And then she's going to go through life and maybe, you know, maybe she'll have other types of agony that come in the last 90 seconds at a time. And it's unbearable, but it's a flow that is bringing newness into the world. And if you can actually, the, the process of becoming an elder, not an older, is to get used to those 90 seconds. To get used to the fact that we give birth over and over and over to newborn aspects of ourselves. And then we are fresh, brand new. When we get through a, a crisis like that, and I've had a few in my life, you come out the other side and you are brand spanking new. I was talking to somebody who works with women in the Congo, which is just... The, the, some of the atrocities being uh, perpetrated there are unspeakable. You don't even want to know. And she said a lot of the, she works with the women there. And she said a lot of these women are, are, don't make it psychologically. They're just completely broken. But she said the ones that do, she's like, they are lighthouses. They are shining. Like they, the agony they've gone through because they accepted what was happening not that they wanted to keep happening, but it it had already happened. It was happening. So the, the allowance of that flow has killed off so much of the attachment, a Buddhist would say, attachment to what is, that what remains just flows like water through the world and nothing harms it. It doesn't try to attach to anything and it just, it flows and flows and flows and it's clear and beautiful and life-giving and it never remains in suffering. It always flows through it and the suffering is always productive. And that's what an elder knows. And the worst things we've been through sometimes are the things that give us the opportunity to be um, an elder in the best sense. So I wanted to take some examples now. Sorry, not examples, questions, but you're all examples of this beauty. Okay. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. So um, now, Rowie, I'm not getting the questions you sent because it's um, you made it so that I couldn't do that. But I still love you. <laughs> okay, now, okay. sorry guys, technical issue. I'm just going to... I told you, okay, I told you it was happening. And you were like, just look at it. Okay, thank you very much. We're just letting it flow through us, ever new, our relationship ever new, ever young. Okay, Suzanne says, my children are 10 and 13 going on 45. 
old souls that have been here before. This generation is here to help with the transformation of consciousness. 100% agree with you, absolutely. And they are different. Um, one of my friends had a four-year-old and she was, she was talking to him about, she was gonna try to explain death to him. And she's, so she said, you know, and we don't know what consciousness is, but the body gives it up and it seems to, it doesn't move anymore and you don't get to be around the person. And he said, so he said, oh, but it's just a school anyway. He said, I don't stay at school all day, mom. You go to learn something and then you leave. And she was like, I, he's four. I never told him this. I'm hearing a lot of things like that um, from a lot of parents and, and from the young people that I run into. I can't wait till our baby is old enough to say something. She'll probably be, just be like, Ugh, how, what did I do to get saddled with you? Okay. Aleha says, I'm stoked to finally catch this. Oh, yeah. The way of integrity has changed my life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. She says, thanks for writing it. Um, thank you for reading it. Yeah, it's all about flow. So Donna says, how do we let go when our physical body is challenged with pain? This is last week's episode. You guys, this is the most exciting thing I have to tell you. I wasn't going to tell you, but now I'm going to tell you because I have to. Um, so last week I talked about a book I read by Alan Gordon called The Way Out, and it's about chronic pain. Um, you can go watch that or listen to that podcast, but the, the gist of it was when you have pain in the body um, and then you add fear to the pain, the body will heal, but the brain will sustain the pain and it is real. I'm not saying it's fake or it's imaginary. This is real, absolute agonizing pain that never changes and never stops. But the thing that holds it in place is fear, okay? Fear, fear, fear. So then somebody wrote me after the gathering room and said, oh yeah, this um, cured my chronic pain. Have you read John Sarno's work? Yes, I have. And a couple of other people. Then somebody sent me a, a recording of somebody who, who did a past life regression and she died in childbirth of that life. And, and it said, she said, Darn it, I was there to practice distancing myself from pain and I forgot. I forgot that if you're not afraid of pain, it won't hurt you as much. And that was the whole reason I went down there. And then I got afraid of the pain and checked out before I really wanted to. Believe that or not, I don't know. I mean, it's to me, it's very, very, very woo-woo. And maybe it's true and maybe it's not. But it was interesting that she was saying the fear of pain is greater it's a greater destructive force than the pain itself. Then um, I had a session with a physical therapist on my foot that had surgery and she started talking about, okay, pull the foot this way, hold it there. The, the brain will get rid of the fear of the injury and then it will drop the pain. And I was like, huh. And then I started to think, I believe that I am being given, because when things come at you from all those different angles, this whole, this thing kept coming at me. Pain is about fear. There's pain and it's not fun, but it's acceptable. But pain plus fear is excruciating. Pain plus fear holds emotional as well as physical pain in place. And I realized that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of, of grieving, um, bargaining, um, De uh, denial, bargaining, anger, grief, acceptance, that thing, fear isn't in there because you can go through that cycle with fear as I have always done and then it will stay in you forever as anxiety. But 
if you go through it without fear, the anger, the grief, the whole thing, you come out on the other side changed and it flows through you. So the absence of fear is the key to handling this reality without ever getting old, okay? Old in spirit, old even in body. It's the key to getting through pain. It's the key to letting go of pain. So I was thinking, I'm gonna read, reread the best book I've ever read on fear. It's called The Gift of Fear and it's by Gavin De Becker, and it was, was written decades ago. I'm sure I've talked to you guys about it because this guy is a brilliant writer and he's a brilliant man and he is an expert in the, pre the prevention of violence. And what he talks about is that useful fear is an instinctive response that keeps us safe. But the vast majority of our fear is unnecessary, worry, anxiety, stuff that's not about anything in the room and it doesn't do anything to help. And he says that is actually, you've got to get rid of that or your real instincts can't keep you safe. And I thought, I've never read anything better than The Gift of Fear. I gotta reread Gavin DeBecker's book. I'm sitting at my computer thinking this thought, you guys, and I get a text. And the text says, hi, Martha. I don't know if this is you, but I would love to talk to you. My name is Gavin DeBecker. You can look me up on Wikipedia. And I was like, oh my God, I was just thinking about you. The coincidences are starting to mount up, you guys, and everything is saying fear is actually, it's like the instinctive fear that keeps us safe, great, hang on to that, it's terrific. It's a, it's a calm impetus to action is how we feel it. But the worry, the anxiety, the dread that I've been feeling almost my whole life around almost everything there is, we can get rid of it completely. And when we do, physical pain, emotional pain, the changes we're about to face as humans, they all get better. We get younger. We start to age in reverse physically, emotionally, and in every other way. So thanks, Dr. Donna, for triggering that rant of synchronicities. Okay, Lydia says, do you have any tips for processing grief over losses when you still need to function in society? Like, do laundry have a job? Absolutely. Um, I remember a recent loss that I had, not that recent, maybe 10 years ago, but um, I gave myself an hour every morning to grieve. And I would, I would just give myself complete, I, just, I was meditating anyway, and I, I said, instead of meditating, I'm just going to let myself feel the grief over this. And I let it just flood me. And then I would say, okay, and I would pretend I was tucking it in bed for the day. And I'd say, I'll be back tomorrow morning. And yeah, I'd have breakthrough sadness at times during the day, but that hour a day of being compassionate to myself in my fear, also knowing that I wasn't completely the fear, but the, the sadness, sorry, the sadness was in me, but I wasn't consumed by the sadness. And I, I wasn't afraid of the sadness. I haven't been afraid of sadness for a long, long time because I got, I got some education in that earlier in my life. But yeah, you can put it in one book. I know they call it denial with a little d. You just package it up, put a little Tupperware on it, put it in the shelf and get back to it later. It is a finite lake of grief. I used to think of my tears as a lake of grief that had an end point. Once I'd cried them out, it would stop and it does. And it leaves you fresher, stronger, clearer, and less attached, which makes you younger. Stephanie says, how do we go back to the places we held on to? How do we fix it? Oh, you don't have to. It's like they say, how do you find a vegan at a party? 
And the answer is, don't worry, they'll come to you. <laughs> um, the places we're holding on are the places we are suffering, the places we have pain. I can't believe Bob did that to me. You know, if we're hanging on to that, we're like a million years old, even if it happened last week. And it'll keep, it'll stay high up in our consciousness and keep us from enjoying our lives. Like I was so sad about the birds that I was literally like, ah, I'm driving through this gorgeous autumn day. Ah, my birds are gone. And then when I went, okay, that's where I've got to let go. I don't know. I'm going to try to get them back. But right now they're gone and they've been gone all summer. All right. Okay. And as soon as I let it go and the grief went through me, I started to um, find the other places I was holding on that I need to let go of. It's always about letting go, you guys. Always. Um, Stephanie says, how do we help others um, to allow that flow to take place if they're stuck in places of grief? You really can't push it, but you can say, I'm right here. I'm here. I'm with you. Um, Ro told me the Australian way of dealing with people's deep anguish. And here's what you do. You're like, yep. Yeah, mate. That sucks. That's it. That's all you have to do. And everything I've ever done as a coach boils down to that, to helping people get through grief that way. So Catherine says, when you allow the 90 seconds of suffering, do you then allow 90 seconds for, sorry, for something? I, I can't see this. this is too, for joy. So you don't get stuck in the pain. I sometimes get stuck in the depression. And while I'm in it, while I'm at it, what is depression? Depression, I believe, is change that is stuck. A change that wants to happen that is stuck. You're hanging on to a thing, the way things used to be, or you just don't want things to be they are, the way they are. So it's a resistance to reality and it's a numbness. It's not the deep flowing pain of grief. It's this numb disassociation from the world. It feels blank and horrifying and feelingless. And sometimes after the 90 seconds, I doubt you'll bounce right up into joy. I myself tend to just sit there and pant for a while, maybe in relief, but you know, lie down, be kind to yourself. When you're really in deep grief, between the 90 seconds, you get a rest. A woman in labor doesn't labor for 90 seconds and then get up and do a jig. She lies, she pants for a while. She eats some ice chips, then comes another 90 seconds. And in an intense suffering, that's how you let go. Oh, so, someone here is a midwife. She says, I often say to, to women, let go. The sound that a birthing woman makes makes when they let go and bring forth a baby is pure magic. Oh, I don't know what that sound is or I would make it. I probably made it three times. I don't remember, but I would love to get a recording of it. I've got a few more questions. We're a little bit over time, so I'm going to keep going. You can, you can, you can go have fun getting younger. Holly says, how do you stop clamping on so that you can go with the flow? The way you stop clamping on is to sit there and realize that things are as they are. Like I fought so hard. I was cleaning the bird thing. I was trying to change different things. And I finally just realized there were no birds in my yard this summer. And there are no birds right now. All right. And that's what it is. It's, uh, all right. It is what it is. And then you start to, as Byron Katie, my favorite spiritual teacher says, you sit there with the death of your loved one and you think it's unbearable. And then if you just accept it, you'll realize after a while that you really want a sandwich. And someday you're going to be eating a sandwich, even though your loved one is gone. And you're going to think, this is delicious. And at that point you're flowing, right? So enjoy the deliciousness 
Sometimes the grief itself can be delicious. And to enjoy the deliciousness of everything is the way to stop clamping on. So Jessica says, my brain tries to start a new grief cycle after the 90 seconds pass. How do you unhook if it happens? I don't, I go into it. I've, uh, my son's friend with Down syndrome, little Joey with Down syndrome, when his mother died, I watched him go into the 90 seconds of anguish and then pop out. <sighs> and then he'd go in again. And I watched him heal like in real time because he had no resistance. And I just, I try to be like him. I try to just go with it. Marianne says, I feel the most awkward around my young friends. Like I feel younger around them, but I feel like the old person acting younger. How do you become the beloved youthful elder? I suggest you stop worrying about being beloved and just be love. Beloved people. Like look at someone and go, I love you. And see if they don't immediately take you as their favorite person in the room. Um, Anne says, are you saying anxiety is prolonged fear? I am. And that's my experience of it. Amy says, do you identify as an elder now? You seem so playful. How does, how does play create elders? Yes, the older you get as an elder, the more playful life is because you're gonna die in a minute and you're almost done. So it's like, yay, we might as well have fun. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I identify as an elder in this specific second. Yesterday, I was an older. I've been an older a lot of times. And the moment you stop being older, you're an elder. Hi, hi, guess what happened? We have, are you old or young, my baby? Are you old or young? What do you think of that? What do you think of those peoples? She's like, I don't even care about the peoples. Look, look at the peoples. This is, <laughs> she's totally fascinated by the pictures on the monitor. You guys, mwah, we love you and we're glad you joined us on the gathering room and we'll see you next week when you will be one week younger than you are today. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Love you guys. Bye. change eh mm, it sure does keep happening i feel like there's something that you martha beck have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it oh by coincidence now that you mention it i have it's called the change cycle mm. it's about four aspects of the whole process of change and we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change and you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 